This time, we're taking a deep dive at the futuristic robot thriller, Ghost in the Shell. And along the way we ask, how is this movie really sexy without really trying? Would you want a cybernetic organ? And are we approaching a technological singularity? Our name is Force-Fed Sci-Fi, and we give our consent. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host... The Robotic, Sean Michael Culp. Well, I guess we're not physically in the room, and we're really playing into the whole robotics because we are <laughs> we're recording and we are recording virtually together today technically yeah we are robot yes we are doing remote this is our first uh full episode of recording via remote so thanks guys for tuning in we appreciate you and thank you chris for having such great cell phone service <laughs> no it's it's good to be back and recording and discussing today's film, 2017's Ghost in the Shell. Yes, the ever-controversial Ghost in the Shell with the good old Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, um, whoa, there's a lot to kind of unpack with this movie, so let's kind of dive in. Yeah, give- Let's get going. Come on, synopsis, <laughs> man. Give it- Tell him. Tell him. Tell you? Tell you? <laughs> you want a synopsis? <laughs> All right, I'll give you a synopsis. In the near future, Major Mira Killian is the first of her kind, a human who is cyber-enhanced to be a perfect soldier devoted to stopping the world's most dangerous criminals. When terrorism reaches a new level that includes the ability to hack into people's minds and control them, she is uniquely qualified to stop it. As she prepares to face a new enemy, Major discovers that her life was stolen instead of saved. Now she will stop at nothing to recover her past, while punishing those that did this to her. Oh wow, that's that's pretty deep, intense. Even. Yeah, <laughs> it's it is definitely ramped up in this film, and uh, and it sounds amazing. Yes, that synopsis, it really does. <laughs> but the way you're wording that, it sounds amazing, but execution. So before we go into that, <laughs> let's knock out. So who directed this film? Uh, the so Rupert Sanders guy. An English film director? Yeah, he is a self-proclaimed mega fan of the original manga that Ghost in the Shell is based on. And and he had previously directed um, this fantasy action film by the uh, name of Snow White and the Huntsman. Yeah, I saw that in theaters with uh, Kristen Stewart or whatever her name was. And then uh, yeah. Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, yeah, Snow White and the Huntsman. Oh, and Charlize, Charlize Theron. Or whatever the heck her name is. <laughs> Theron. 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 Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he he landed in hot water after the film was released because um, it was discovered he was having an affair with Kristen Stewart during the production of that <laughs> no, film. No, this is the director that was having... No, that was banging Kristen Stewart? Oh, my God. Yeah. Did- yeah, he threw his, he threw his um, family life away for Kristen Stewart. What? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And how did that work out for him? Well, not too great. I mean, <laughs> but but this isn't a tabloid. We're not here to discuss their private lives we're, too much. We're not TMZ. Hello, Chris. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Who else? 
who uh yeah but the, this film is starring scarlett johansson as major mira killian and her character's name i think was slightly uh anglicized for the film but she was cast in 2014 after margot robbie passed on the role to play harley quinn in the um in the dc comics films which is fine because margot robbie i feel like she um encapsulates everything that um freaking harley quinn is you know i i honestly i think that was just perfect casting so it makes sense that she was cast you know and she bypassed this film for that however uh, johansson's casting caused quite a, a stir among critics of the film calling it more part of more hollywood whitewashing all right so basically for people out there who don't know what whitewashing is which i don't know how you don't in the modern era whitewashing is essentially casting a white person in the lead role because you don't hollywood doesn't believe that anyone could make money unless they're white right am i getting that correct yeah um most of the time you see it when it comes to works that are based off of original source material such as a book comic books manga Anything like that where a character is mentioned as being of a specific race or religion, and yet that is changed in the film to make that character more marketable. Uh, yeah, a big uh, example would be The Wall, I would say. that movie. You remember that movie with Matt Damon, the unforgettable movie, where basically the entire cast was eight Chinese except him? He's this white oh, guy. Oh, yeah, the... the the horribly racist white savior film that was set in feudal China. Yes. For this film though, do you think it's true that it's whitewash or do you, or do you think it was an overreaction? Because I've seen, so I read a lot about the director, the creator, the people in actual Japan. They said that they didn't care that Scarlett Johansson was, you know, the major they said that when they made the character major, the suit was designed so that it could be essentially any race that could portray major. It didn't have to necessarily be, you know, an, someone from an Asian descent. But it seemed like the most outrage came from white people in Hollywood. Right, and I and I definitely think it was a slight it was a slight overreaction, but maybe it was warranted in this case. I think. I think the fact that Rupert Sanders, who is he was a white man and he's British, you know, coming coming to adapt this beloved piece of Japanese manga, I think that really didn't get the ball uh, rolling correctly in this situation. And then casting somebody like Scarlett Johansson, who do has a ton of star power and it is very marketable, I don't think, you know, pushed the right buttons for the people who did get upset. Um, but like you, but like you said, her casting caused no major issues in Japan, and it really was an issue in Asian populations outside of Japan. And even the creator of the manga himself actually uh, lauded her performance. She thought she was great in it. Yeah, yeah, they thought she was phenomenal as major. So I don't know. It's it's a tough uh, thing. Um, I would say Matt Damon's movie, like we said, The Wall, is more whitewashing because literally every character, in my mind, 
is Asian except him. Whereas in this movie, the cast is pretty diverse, wouldn't you say? Like there's black people, Hispanic people, Middle Eastern people. So it's, it's, I don't know. It's like for when I watched it, it was tough to be like, all right, that's, you know, there, she's not the only white person in the movie, you know? Yeah. But I think in this instance where you have a film that is set in Japan, I mean, even the character of Kuze, who's played by Michael Carmen Pitt, that could have easily been a Japanese actor that filled that role. Yeah. Do you think, though, that this film should have been total Jap- Japanese or, you know, with the augmentation of having like American actors in it and et cetera, different races? Do you think that hurt the film? And this is and this is the problem with I don't want to say problem with Japanese manga, but this is a problem with like smaller um, entertainment IPs that have a cult following that you have to if you're going to make a big screen adaptation of this then you have to be able to get people that you can easily market and promote in this film and like i can un- fully understand why the uh, the studios for ghost in the shell cast scarlett johansson and the actors they cast because they have a broad appeal when like american studios adapt like an asian inspired film i i always say that the departed is probably the best depiction of adapting something that's from asian markets because the departed a lot of people may not know this is initially from an asian inspired film you know it's like a remake essentially and i think it's so great because there's they still hold true to the original and they do a callback to the Asian film with having like the Asian mobsters in it, but they make it Americanized. Whereas with this film, I felt like they struggled with it. It almost felt weird, you know, having a bunch of like these different diverse actors in it, but it's still in like Tokyo. Whereas like, if you know Japanese culture, it's like 98% of the population is Japanese. So it almost felt out of place. Well, maybe this is also, too, in an alternate future where yeah. Japan and other nations of the world have become more of a melting pot. Which is very possible for our future. Instead of the United States being the melting pot, other nations have taken the you know initiative. Well, and it's, and it, it's tough to really kind of pinpoint exactly when the film takes place. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't really, they never but, say... No, and again, this is more to my point of I don't like it when films are overtly vague in their in their timelines. Oh, the the near future, <laughs> right. the not too distant future. It's like, what does the near future, not distant future, mean? Tomorrow, ten years from now, when does that mean? I totally agree. right, and and the technology that showcase this is this is pretty much showcasing a quantum leap in technology. Yeah. Like, they can go invisible. You're putting a human brain inside of a robot body. Mm-hmm. Which... I mean, how how insane is that? Well, it's unprecedented for our modern times, because we can't even do, like, head transplants in the current era, I don't believe. No, not without killing the patients. Exactly. Every patient that has ever wanted a head transplant is backed out at the last moment, because they're like, you know what? I like life. I'm going to chill. I like my head. I, I like where it's at. <laughs> exactly. So then, so I found that technology where you can put a human brain in a robotic suit and have it 
work. Actually, there's three professors, three researchers that believe that brain transplants are possible. That where you can put it inside a robot because they say, you know, the brain's the last organ to die. And they feel like if you put, um, if you can find a way to support the biological blood, you know, and have like a substitute or something to like channel the body with the neurological processes and all that stuff and the organs, you could somehow put a brain in a robotic body. Now, has it worked? Apparently, scientists put like a, apparently they put a worm brain in a Lego body and it worked. Apparently, that's real research. That is real. That happened December 2017. Chris, I don't know if you knew that. Well, I'd be curious to see how long the worm lived after the worm brain. it was placed yeah. into the Lego body. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It doesn't say. It just shows YouTube videos and pictures of this weird Lego body working with this brain. But apparently it worked. Well, my for the next trick, they should put the worm brain into a G.I. Joe or something. <laughs> well, my question with like putting a worm, like a brain in like a robot is, will it negate like Alzheimer's, dementia, you know, Parkinson's? Or is that still going to take place? Because that would be terrifying if like you have this super suit of like a robot and then it has dementia. <laughs> Sorry, do not remember cannot compute choo, 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 you know like it's freaking out and doesn't know where it's at that'd be terrifying well yeah and, uh, and well this was an issue that was brought up when we discussed the the sixth day and the cloning mentioned in the film explicitly said that they can't clone a human brain because you're you you can't clone a, a human brain without cloning an entire human which is illegal of course um but I think if there was a way for humanity to download their subconscious onto a computer, maybe that would negate any sort of future neurological diseases, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, what have you. Yeah, you can find a way to like short it out on there. Well, yeah, and that also leads into the idea of the technological singularity. It's uh, yeah, it's a hypothetical point. In the future, where technological growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible. So pretty much think Skynet and Terminator, where it gets turned on, realizes humanity is a threat, and decides, all right, humanity's got to die. <laughs> yeah, like Ultron. Yeah, and this was something I actually had a hard time researching, because it this theory isn't credited to one single person. Um, a lot of credit goes to a British mathematician by the name of I.J. Good. Uh, he created uh, what's what he called an intelligence explosion model, which kind of went as follows, as as described here. Computers increase in power. Humanity eventually creates a computer that's more intelligent than humans, and the super intelligent machine creates an even more capable machine or rewrites its own software to become powerful and creates a better machine and so on and so forth. A lot of, actually a lot of prominent scientists and technologists kind of dispute the plausibility of, of the singularity itself. Cause a lot of the proposed methods of creating a super intelligence involve either amplifying our own intelligence or the development of artificial intelligence, which 
as we've talked about on this show previously, there's no clear roadmap of getting to artificial intelligence. So it doesn't seem likely we'll approach this singularity anytime soon. So what do you think of the depiction of the future of uh, Ghost in the Shell? You know, it's, it's very much, it looks sleek. And we see this we see this in a lot of our films that take place in the future. We see, you know, a lot of very cool skyscrapers. The the 3D holographic advertisements are awesome, very reminiscent of Blade yes. Runner to me. Yes. I felt that as well. Very it felt like they took a page out of Blade Runner for this film. And then we kind of get down to street level and we see we see really kind of the grit and grime of this world. We see Major and Batu go into that bar, and it, this does not look like a fun place to go and get a drink. <laughs> no, it seems like a very rough time, you know, in the future of Tokyo. Yeah, and then there's also the slums uh, where Major chases the um, uh, the would-be assassin of Dr. Ulay. And um, the final fight between her and the spider tank, it's uh, it, it, this is clearly a rundown older section of the city that, you know, unfortunately where Mira and her compatriots were taken and killed in the name of science. So, it, I mean, it, it's very shiny, of course. And then we just, and then we, we kind of go down to street level and see, no, this is really not a fun world to be a part of. This isn't the utopia that's advertised. Yeah, exactly. It's like you it's like a person went on Google images and Googled a different a third world country was like, wow, this looks great. And then once they got there like, oh God. Not to poo poo on a third world country, but you know what I mean. Right. And then this is this is something that we've seen in many, many other films that depict um a dystopian future like this. Everything looks great on the surface and then we go down to street level and see things are not great. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people have gravitated to these dystopian type films for so long. I mean, obviously Blade Runner being the prime example because it didn't show anything that was too, too shiny or too clean. It was a very dirty, gritty world. And this is, this is, I'm not saying that ghost in the shell is in the same ballpark as Blade Runner, but it definitely takes a lot of cues from Blade Runner. I saw that during uh, multiple scenes with like the car driving or even the beginning scene with her jumping down and them uh, saving the terrorist attack, you know, defending Hanka or whatever. It just felt very reminiscent of Blade Runner. There are a lot of great action scenes in the film, but we don't get too many of them. Yeah, so that's kind of like... That is, That's my criticism of this movie, um, that so much of it is wasted on, like, not just kind of, like, dialogue that isn't too engaging and, like, characters that aren't really that interesting, you know? You, the action scenes are really good, you know, when they have them, and the CGI, when you can ex when they explore the world, when the characters explore the world, the film is really interesting, but so much of it is just spent with them just in, like, room sitting or talking. Right, and it's it's something that the film really could have used more as something to beef up the overall look and really showcase what Mira is capable of. Because I never feel like we got to see... A 100% demonstration of her capabilities. No, 
and she didn't feel i mean i've never seen i've never read ghost in the shell have you i have not so i don't know same so i i don't know you know if like what she acts like in the comics but in the movie she almost felt like black widow-esque you know like more human than uh cyborg you know that can do superhuman abilities well, and this is the problem, too, of having somebody like Scarlett Johansson in this kind of role, because we we allow ourselves to we allow our criticism to kind of be colored by her past work. And she's playing it pretty much if you wanted to introduce this person, this film to a lay person, you would say, oh, pretty much imagine if Black Widow were a robot in Japan. Exactly. Exactly. She her, my criticism of Scarlett Johansson is she's really nothing different than Black Widow in the Marvel films, except that she doesn't have a comedic quip every five minutes. She's just so bland emotionally. Um, it like I I'm a real big believer in like there's certain people that can play action heroes, like Tom Cruise right. for example. He's incredible. He's made what how many Mission Impossible's? But some actors, you know, they're good at more emotional roles. And I think Scarlet, to me personally. I, I love Scarlett Johansson, like Marriage Story, um, Lost in Translation. I think that's where she shines more than these roles where it's like, oh, I'm just going to be dark and not have any um, lines other than like the super serious film, you know? Yeah, and, it, and there was there is there are real chances for this film to explore the deeper uh, themes of searching for one's identity and femininity in the film, but, but they're really kind of lost They're They kind of start, they kind of start out with those scenes. Like in, um, when major picks up the prostitute and doesn't exactly like do anything, but just kind of is really kind of tracing the outlines of her face and, you know, asking her, are you human? And then that scene really kind of abruptly ends. So we we kind of start out on a journey, but then we realize, hey, we didn't bring any food. We have to kind of go back and get more. <laughs> yes, I definitely agree with you. I think we don't find enough. We don't find out enough about her. And there's just too many cuts in this film. I don't know if you noticed that, but there's so many scenes where like in a 15 second span, there'll be like 11 or 12 different cuts every second. Or like a different camera angle or close up and it's just you never have time to like sit and take in who these characters are it's always like jumping to the next 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 angle you know yeah and a lot of that too is the the i would pin that more on the fault of the cinematographer and the editor than i do rupert sanders i think again i think sanders was just caught up in the whole mystique of hey i'm a fan and i get to direct a you know one of my favorite things ever <laughs> Exactly. Which is sad because I feel like he really wanted this film to be great, but it just execution wise, for some reason, it just didn't work out to what he wanted. Right. I'm curious what his actual dream was, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, he did get a pretty sizable budget. Yeah. For this film, I saw it was something in the neighborhood of one hundred and ten billion dollars. So he had a he had a pretty big piggy bank to work with. Yeah, that's why it's so befuddling. You know, it's like how much did Scarlett get paid? I read that she got uh, around ten million dollars to play uh, to play Major. That's pretty good. Holy smokes! Major is playing a big role in the film obviously she's the main character but she's also with this 
cybercrime unit titled Section 9. And I'm not sure how I feel uh, knowing that they're sponsored by Hank of Robotics. The idea of corporate sponsorship of you know, a government group is troubling to me. Oh, why is that? I, I've always thought that corporate interests should stay out of politics and vice versa. I definitely, I, I follow you. Now, this isn't force-fed sci-fi making too much of a political stance, but yeah, <laughs> generally speaking, you know, corporates should, corporations should stay with corporations, right? Yeah, and I I, 100, I agree with that. I mean, and, and I think this might be something that's more kind of common in this, uh, in the Japanese manga subculture, because we saw you know, the you know the the bureaucracy of corporations and military and science groups in a previous film we covered, Akira. Yeah, exactly. That was huge. And plus, yeah, that was a that was a major part of the film. And I don't feel like Hanko was a big part of the film. I felt like um, Mr. Cutter, the Hanka CEO, was more of the villain than Hanka itself. Yes. I so I agree with you there. When the villain is like Hanka, it just it didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like this big corporate overlord was overruling, which is why it felt a little off put it like the end battle I felt like was very um anticlimactic, you know? It's like, wait, what? There's a spider robot thing that's gonna attack you? What Okay. You know, I, I would have rather sufficed her going in and killing him than, like, having this long, drawn-out, weird battle that, you know, it didn't really amount to much of anything, emotionally speaking. Yeah, it would have been great, like, if Cutter dropped himself into a robot suit a la RoboCop and was like, I'm going to fight you now, Major. Meh. Exactly. Something more like that. As opposed to just this giant spider robot thing. Though it was a cool, you know, the old man got to off him, which was exciting. Well, and Aramaki, I think, is really kind of the, really kind of the, not I wouldn't say moral compass exactly, but he's the, he's the person that always reminds Section 9 of that they're bound to the laws and their mission and not any sort of objectives that Hanka has for them. Yes. Yeah, and Aramaki, the actor who plays him, is a guy by the name of Beat Takashi, and I uh, kind of I looked him up researching this, and I mean, obviously he's not too well known here in the states, but the dude has been acting and directing in Japan since the 1970s, and he is a straight up legend over there, as far <laughs> as I can tell. <laughs> All right, fun fact, folks. If you ever have that uh, trivia night. <laughs> um. But also, too, I mean, we see Aramaki as the guiding force behind Section 9, but also we see Dr. Ule as the driving maternal force uh, behind Major. Yeah, she's definitely the woman, the person she goes to, you know, for all the questions. And you definitely see her being let down initially when she finds out that she wasn't the first to be tested on. But def- But the character redeems herself and everything, so it's kind of... She is. She does seem like that motherly character. Yeah, and I did find out that Doctor Ule was actually was originally a man in the manga, and they changed it for the film here. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, wait, well, if I if they didn't, I'm on board with making that change because if they hadn't, well, then Mira would just be 
in a room with six other dudes all the time. <laughs> well, that's probably why they changed it. They're like, we need some estrogen in this room. Speaking of and, uh, estrogen, mm. do you have any toxic fandom? Oh, Lord, is there toxic fandom? <laughs> What's the toxic fandom in this? So this week in toxic fandom, when Major shoots the geisha robot in the face, the robot's face is open, revealing its inner workings. The face then closes, and when next scene, the impact patterns from the bullets smoothly cross the seams of the closed face, which they would not do if the face were shot when open. <laughs> All right. So we have... so we have bullet impact pedants on the internet now. Oh, I've got a uh, dog pedant. So when oh, lay it on me. When Batua asks Major to feed the dogs for him as he doesn't want to scare him with his new cyborg eyes. The dogs would only care about the way he smells, that he still smells the same, not about his eyes. So he shouldn't he shouldn't have let her Major feed his dogs. And, you know, the dogs wouldn't have cared. No, I mean, they wouldn't care either. I mean, <laughs> I've got my dog here next to me when we're recording. She clearly does not care that I'm doing something else. Exactly. So there's a dog pet in. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, mean, I get why Bato is apprehensive to go out in public with his new eyes. I mean, because they can, they do, they look a little weird, especially if you don't know, hey, this dude's got cyber eyes. Yeah, yeah, they they look like telescopes on his face. I'm like, what is this? Why, why would you pick those, man? I, t I chalked that up to the director being like, this would be cool. Well, that's how Batu looks in the manga. He has, those, he has those eyes. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there we go. Okay. Sean learned yeah, something new today. Yeah. Bato seems like a cool dude. I really wish we got more of him and Major together. Like, like not exactly in a lethal weapon, Martin, you know, you know, Riggs and Murtaugh kind of way, but, like, we should have gotten them more as, you know, cop buddies together. Dude, that's what I mean. When watching this film, it's like, I, they just, there was that lack of chemistry, you know, between them. Even when he offered her a beer, I'm like, just drink it, number one. And number two, why are you offering a cyborg a beer? Does she eat food? Like, what? what is that? Like, how does that work? I don't know. I will say, though, that Bato's eyes are pretty cool, and it got me wondering, you know, there's a, there's another point earlier in the film when one of Mira's colleagues uh, mentions that he got a cyber liver, and now every night is last call for him. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So, I mean, we recently talked about this a couple weeks ago when we discussed the signal in what bionic appendage would you want, but I got to ask... Is there an organ you would want to make cybernetic? I would probably, yeah. If I had to, I'd probably make my knee, my legs from the knee down cybernetic, so I could run, <laughs> and I wouldn't have to get a knee replacement when I'm eight, when I'm fifty-five. That would be my cybernetic replacement. How about you? Man, I gotta go with the 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 officer in the film who gets a cyber liver. <laughs> So, oh yeah, right. Or a cyber uh, heart. You just have to. Yeah, you make sure you never. Don't, yeah, you never get drunk, and you. You I mean your transplant's already covered? Ah, but I would want to get drunk. That's the fun part about drinking alcohol, to feel the effects. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's. Uh, I'm sure there's several people at AA meetings who might disagree with you on that one. 
they just can't control. Speaking of AA, <laughs> did you? Uh, how did you enjoy the uh, advertisements in the film? <laughs> I guess what what was that? Yeah, the advertisements every everywhere what? they went. I saw the Honda on her bike that she was riding. Um. I didn't feel like the film was super heavy on the product placement. Uh, I did see a Heineken um, advertisement, uh, which I which I was kind of hoping for more real world products because that would then cement this film in a sort of current reality. And I hate to go back to Blade Runner so much, but Blade Runner did that quite a bit. You know, they had Pepsi, they had our um, Atari. I mean, it's a. It's a nice uh, depiction of how pretty much I think the future would be as well with like a bunch of holograms, you know, as advertisements. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I don't I don't mind the holographic advertisements. All right, good. It's not like an Adam Sandler film where he literally looks into the camera and says, drink Pepsi. Mm. <laughs> yeah, or he's happy Gilmore hawking a Subway sandwich. <laughs> exactly did you have any uh i guess lens flare or red shirts throughout this film oh did i uh <laughs> my lens flare was actually the scene when major goes and picks up the hooker to discover a humanity which again i mentioned earlier that this scene could have gone in um it could have further explored the concept of major's identity throughout the course of the film. And this scene is just indicative of that whole struggle. <laughs> yes, I agree. What about you? What's your God. lens flare, Sean? Uh, I honestly, I didn't have too much of a lens flare, maybe like the moments where it was just so focused on like the ghost in the shell where they're like the ghost inside you and it's just like the film just tried to be meta and it wasn't meta enough you know like it just wasn't deep enough they're trying to be meta but they didn't go all the way so like those moments in a whole the down moments were just too much for me i was just no stop stop you know yeah there's moments in the film where we totally forget that there is a bad guy that we're supposed to be on the lookout for yeah exactly yes yes I totally agree with you. You're like, wait, who is this guy? Why? Who cares? Yeah, he shows He's up maybe in? a total of three, four times in the film, and he is not at all intimidating. No, not at all. He's like your typical corporate shrill. And the guy in uh, Six Day, he was more menacing than this guy. Yeah, it's. I don't know. I think it's just total um, lack of, of understanding who the real villain is in the film. Yeah, yeah. This film is just a cluster of confusion <laughs> well speaking of did you have any uh, uh red shirt at all or oh did i i uh my my red shirts <laughs> were the unnamed hanka scientists who are killed after dr osmond in the beginning of the film <laughs> yeah. we, we don't we don't see this massacre we don't we just see like no? we see like a crime scene reconstruction of it but apparently it was epic as one robot just brutally murdered three people <laughs> And I view this yeah. as totally unnecessary because if Kuze's end game was to expose the project that turned him into, you know, kidnapped his human brain and put him in a robot, all he really had to do was kill Dr. Dolan and Dr. Osmond to get his point across. Yeah. So just. But he didn't. Yeah, just killing all the extra scientists just seemed like overkill to me. It was. 
And I agree. That was my red shirt as well. It was like, why? You didn't have to, man. Oh, just so much unnecessary killing. (laughs) So with all that in mind, let's discuss the legacy of Ghost in the Shell. All right, the legacy. So against that $110 million budget, the film only grossed just under $170 million. So most analysts have called Ghost in the Shell a flop. A flop? Yeah, it definitely didn't. It may have made their money back just enough. Yeah, I mean, I I was actually one of the people who did see this in theaters, and I mean... You did? Yeah, I was trying... I, I didn't really want to hype it up too much in my mind because it seemed like you know right in my wheelhouse you know scarlett johansson you know human brain robot body she's a cop she's investigating cyber crimes seems like it's awesome seems yeah right right up my alley but but the unfortunate part is that this film was not screened for critics which is never a good sign Oh, that's bad. And because of that, it holds a 44% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a 50... Which I I do feel that 44% was more so catered towards the whitewashing. Because it isn't terrible. I wouldn't say it's like the worst film I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. But it isn't like anything that really excites excites you you know yeah and i and this is it's definitely cited as the big reason why the film underperformed was the whitewashing controversy yeah i i definitely i would agree they definitely killed this film the the writers in hollywood but hey at least uh taylor swift's music video ready for it referenced the movie so that's <laughs> kind of exciting i mean yeah it it did receive um, it actually was appreciated as being one of the better attempts to adapt a Japanese manga. Yeah, yeah. So if it, which are very tough. Yeah, the, to adapt it's very tough to. So weird. Yeah, Japanese manga and video games are the toughest forms of media to adapt for a big Hollywood film. Yes, Japanese manga. For the listeners that have never read a Japanese manga, they always get really just weird. At some point, like middle of the storyline, where you're just like looking at it and going, what the heck is happening right now? Why? Why? It just gets like crazy at some point. But that's just, you know, hey, man, culture. We're America. We're from the United States. We're not from Japan. So who knows, right? Yeah. And if anything, this film drew up more interest for the manga. And there is actually now mm-hmm. a new film set to premiere on Netflix in in a matter of days as, as at the point when we're recording this. Yeah. Yeah. But I do want to ask this. Do you think that there is a potential for a sequel to this film or even a reboot of a li- of this live action series? No, I think if there's a reboot, it's going to come from Japan. This film has definitely proven that no one in the United States are interested in watching Ghost in the Shell, particularly if it's a white person. And I don't honestly think it would have mattered if it was white, black, Asian, or Hispanic. It's just the story, I think, is very niche, you know? Niche. It's definitely catered towards people that like the comics. It's not like Batman, where it's universal, you know? Right. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Who the hell knows? So... (laughs) so Let's say we rate this film. So on our unique scale in the Force Fed sci-fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, 
would own and would host a viewing party. What do you give to 2017's Ghost in the Shell, Sean? For Ghost in the Shell, I would put a... uh, You have to watch it once if you're intrigued. I personally would not watch it ever again, so I would put would not watch. Um, I think the CGI is exceptional. The special effects, the world in and of itself of, I think it's Tokyo, that they create in the future is exceptional. It's really something that I think people that are into movies and want to make a good, believable futuristic world should look into because it are their action scenes most of them are pretty exceptional but story-wise it just falls flat and the characters aren't really engaging there's nothing exceptional about them that really draws you you know in and makes you want to like listen more figure out who these guys are so for that it's just if i'm not intrigued about the story i just can't so i would put would not watch personally speaking how about you you know i think not having a knowledge of the manga could be an asset it enjoined us and it it did for me as i would call this film a wood watch uh i do like scarlett johansson and as as major in the film and i do like most of the supporting cast with a couple of exceptions but the movie doesn't try hard enough to really explore the morality and ethics of combining robots, robotics and humanity with intelligence. I feel like that's definitely an avenue that went almost unexplored in this case. And and despite the fact that I would call the film a wood watch and the whitewashing aspects of it can't be ignored in this case. I mean, this was, this was the film that really kind of got that conversation going in Hollywood a few years ago. And it's, and it's something that can't be glossed over when discussing this film either. Yeah. I second that as well. It definitely started a new conversation yeah. for all norms. Yeah. And have changed many sociology majors <laughs> in the university's <laughs> life. Who would have thought Ghost in the Shell turned out a bunch of social justice warriors? <laughs> uh, well, fair enough, man. All right. So after that, we take it to Major Samantha yes. for our next film. Yes. We're calling you, baby. <laughs> yes. We're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to help us select our next film from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected number 33 is a film from 1997 directed by Andrew Nichol and starring Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. It is Gattaca. Whoa, our first Ethan Hawke film. (laughs) I know I like Ethan Hawke. It might be our only Ethan Hawke film. Well, enjoy it. Rock on, guys. Yeah, that'll be our film for next time. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, 
for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the force-fed sci-fi team, we'll see you next time. Force-fed sci-fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.